Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Lockdown Toronto. Everything's been going great so far. You noticed a bit different backdrop. Uh, for more information on that, watch the episode uh, previous to this, or the little teaser thing previous to this. Um, and today, uh, we have on the cast a gentleman by the name of Jordy Dent. He's the executive director of the Federation of Metro Tenants Associations. And he comes on today to speak to a very important issue, and that issue is how this lockdown and this pandemic is affecting tenants. And he's going to speak to tenant rights. He's going to speak to issues that are affecting tenants uh, around all around the city. And I, and, and I know a lot of folks out there might be watching our tenants themselves and thinking that everything's okay, but there are a lot of issues that are happening kind of behind the scenes and in the background that we might not be aware of. And I bring Jordy on to help speak to those things. It's an important issue. It's an issue that I'm very, very interested in. And I hope that you get something out of this cast when it comes down to it and understand uh, your rights a little bit better, uh, the issues that tenants will be uniquely facing, not just now, but in the near future as well. And uh, be sure to tag along with us on this uh, on this conversation. It's going to be really informative. And uh, so I bring on uh, Jordy Dent. Uh, I appreciate you coming on the cast, Jordy, and uh, say a little bit about yourself. Yeah, uh, I'm the executive director of the Federation of Metro Tenants Associations in Toronto, or the Tenant Federation. We're an agency that helps tenants uh, learn about what their rights are and what they can do for dealing with a host of kind of bad landlord or bad landlord-tenant situations. Uh, I've lived in Toronto now for about 12 years, originally from Vancouver, and I worked in uh, how, um, homelessness and housing issues on about three different continents in Indonesia, in Vancouver, in Norway, and now I'm in Toronto. Great. Um, and the Federation of Metro Tenants Associations, uh, what is that exactly to people at home who might not understand, A, what that organization is, and B, what a tenants, tenants group or a tenants association is? Well, we're a federation of tenants associations. So to start off with, you have to understand what a tenant association is. Uh, Toronto uh, is kind of unique uh, compared to some other cities in that we've got a lot of high-rise towers. So historically, um, a lot of those high-rise towers, starting all the way back in the 1960s and 70s when they were built, um, would have tenants associations. Um, they're kind of like unions, only in reverse. Instead of, you know, a boss that's paying you money, you've got a landlord that you're paying money to. Um, but all of you live together in the same area, and you might have uh, ongoing building issues like repairs or harassment or the rent being going higher and higher. So um, a lot of those buildings would start tenant associations um, that were kind of like groups of tenants that would work together on these issues and work together collectively. And then in the 1970s, they formed a federation, which is us. Uh, and we now have, you know, thousands of individual and tenant association members uh, across the city that join our organization. Um, the federation kind of has two wings. One is a service wing where we help people with questions. We've got a tenant hotline, an outreach service, staff that can help you build a tenant association. And then we do advocacy. So our board of directors mostly does that. They try to meet with politicians of various levels of government to try to improve tenant rights and, and make sure that there's things like, you know, 
funds available for tenants, uh, ways that they can get maintenance done, stuff like that. So essentially, you're an umbrella group for all the tenant associations that exist around the city, and they might be in a building that is, you know, 10 units to anywhere as a few hundred units, 500 units even. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got, you know, some individual members that just rent a house and, you know, want to tell us about some issues that they're dealing with or maybe some things that they're seeing in their neighborhood. And we've got tenant associations that have, you know, a thousand members across five different buildings. Wow. So how many tenants associations roughly are, are there in Toronto? Just to get a size of what kind of block or group of, 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 of people it is in the city. I mean, there's maybe a thousand towers in the city of Toronto uh, and then smaller buildings, a lot more, maybe a few thousand of them. Um, At any given time, we're working actively with about 200 tenant associations. A lot of them kind of start and stop depending on how uh, good or bad the building is. Right. So you have some associations that, you know, once a year they hold a barbecue and then you got others that are kind of in a almost constant state of war with their landlord, trying to get them to deal with, you know, bed bugs or get them to kind of finish the construction that they're kind of dealing with right now during the pandemic. So um, it ranges across the board, but we've got a lot of different folks that we work with in a lot of different areas. Any corner of Toronto, if there's a rental unit, we're usually working with them. So capacity so they're usually driven by the tenants uh themselves to form and then perhaps that group comes to your group and says help us form this in a way where not only we have some kind of uh fiscal power in terms of how we deal with our rent relationship with the landlord or maintenance relationship but also in some legal sense in case it has to go down that road and and Personally, I've dealt with a few tenants associations, and uh, they've been nothing but a good and helpful thing. So, I mean, the Federation of Metro Tenants Associations is, is is a great entity out there. For anyone looking to form one, we can explain a little bit more about how that works a little bit later. So, the reason I bring you on today, obviously, is because you 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 probably are the best person to speak to with their ear on the ground, not only to the issue of tenant rights and the tenant issues that are uniquely forming during this pandemic and during the lockdown, but also the most vulnerable groups of tenants out there who are dealing with this. And I've, I've done a little bit of scouring and there's not a lot of coverage happening about it in the news or in the press, which is why I wanted to bring you on, but I've seen some horror stories that are taking place um, can you, can you walk us through a few of some of the issues that are uniquely happening, not only to tenants generally, but some specific vulnerable groups of tenants? Yeah. You know, um, we normally track about a hundred different data points on one of our services, which is called our tenant hotline. And that can range from, you know, a bunch of different things related to lease agreements, or repairs, or rent and illegal charges. But since the kind of lockdown came down and we've been kind of uh, dealing with the pandemic, pretty much we've been dealing with three issues over and over again. Um, The first issue is um, people just not being able to pay rent. A lot of people have had their incomes cut out from under them. Renters, on average, make about $40,000 a year, which is about half of what Um, homeowner families make 
Um, and so they tend to just not have a lot of income or their income's a bit more precarious. So when something like this massive sudden pandemic hits, a lot of people have just lost all their money. Um, the other thing that we're seeing a lot of is harassment. So uh, landlords, um, basically their entire business model is based off of tenant incomes. So when tenant incomes get slashed, uh, that gets passed on to the landlord as well. Uh, and a lot of landlords have not prepared for that. A lot of them have not done proper risk mitigation. A lot of them do not have any savings. A lot of them are pretty much living off of the tenants' income themselves for their properties. So you're seeing a lot of them engage in just very monstrous, harassing behavior, threatening to lock people out, demanding money that just tenants don't have. Um, and then the third issue is... Um, probably the most voluminous one in terms of just overall complaints has been concerns around building contagion and uh, risk of like things like cleaning. Um, so there's no real standardization out there. You know, landlords should be cleaning the elevators repeatedly, making sure, you know, twice a day passings of things like laundry rooms, uh, just to ensure that you have proper kind of disinfectant. Um, but a lot of buildings have nothing. Uh, you know, the city we recently found out sent emails to all of them uh, kind of at the end of March saying this is what you got to do. But a lot of them aren't doing that. Um, as an example, I think the best um, recent example that kind of summarizes all of these things is what happened in Crescent Town recently. Crescent Town's an area in the city of Toronto. Um, a landlord called Pinedale Properties was going door to door uh, demanding rent from people um, entering their units with a debit machine, uh, telling them you got to max out your credit cards and, Oh, don't worry about COVID. It's just like the flu. I mean, this is totally they're, they're, illegal. They're overreacting. I think is the quote I saw some, something like that, <laughs> that comment. Yeah. I mean, and it was, uh, you know, completely illegal to enter a unit like that. Um, uh, unbelievably dangerous. Yeah. Who knows how many people are being infected uh, from this action? Who knows how many yeah, people are Yeah, here's this buttony thing that they pass through the door. Just put your fingers on this thing to pay your rent with your credit card, and they're going unit to unit to unit. The level right. of insanity, it just boggles my mind. Yeah, and I mean, Crescent Town is huge. It's got thousands of units in it. Um, so I think that's just a good example of the, the type of uh, kind of actions you're seeing. I mean, that was a particularly horrific case, but you're seeing that kind of stuff all across the city right now. Now, the city of Toronto, a few years back, they came up with a model, or they were implored by the councillors to come up with the model, a model for landlord licensing. And from what I remember, they pulled back on direct licensing of landlords and came out with a list of suggested suggested activities that need to take place within any dwelling that the landlord must facilitate something like that now if we would have had a landlord licensing regime in place at this point when the pandemic hit versus a list of guidelines that the city pushed onto as as a half measure to push onto landlords would the city have better leverage to control these kinds of behaviors and practices by landlords uh, yeah, I mean, I think a li the whole principle of a licensing system is that if you, you break the law, you lose your license, and then maybe you lose the apartment building. Um, the city didn't really know how to work that with a landlord, um, because, for example, they license 
hot dog stands and taxis, uh, if you pull the license, the taxi or the hot dog stand goes off the road. You can't really take an apartment building off the road. Right. Um, so what they implemented, I mean, there were some actually good things that they've suggested um, and that they did pass by council uh, at the end of 2016. And probably the most important thing that they passed that they required all landlords to do was have dedicated cleaning plants. The biggest issue is that the city department responsible for that has never implemented that in the last three years. Um, so uh, that department, which is called Municipal Licensing and Standards, uh, they went hard, really, really hard after, you know, cannabis companies in the city of Toronto enforcing them. They sent, you know, teams of inspectors. They put cinder blocks in front of a bunch of the agencies. I mean, they really pulled out all the stops to try to license them. Um, but they never even bothered to check, um, and they audited every building. They never bothered to check whether the landlords had a cleaning plan or not. Um, and so that program, which is, uh, you know, we think it's actually a decent program, has just never been implemented. They've well, never well the enforcement the is just not there, right? So if you create a bad law and a bad program that just goes unheeded, it essentially encourages disrespect for the law or disrespect for the program. It's like speeding limits that are never enforced. People just speed and just get a disrespect for the actual law that is supposed to be observed in that moment. So exactly. do you think it's a matter of MLS, municipal licensing standards, the body that's supposed to enforce regulations on a whole slew of different things, including apartment buildings and including landlords and including these list of recommendations. But do, do you think that it's just a matter of MLS doesn't care a distribution of resources in the wrong place or just a lack of resources generally? I mean, as I said to somebody uh, a while ago, if you were doing everything in your power not to implement a law, this is how you do it. Wow. So you know, when we were fighting for this program, you know, we understood that you can't just get the 20 or so MLS officers um, to do all this extra stuff with their current duties. So one of the things that we were able to get was extra funding for 10 new inspectors. And we got this funding for them in 2017. And they never hired the inspectors. Wow. Why do you think that is? It was just a, a way to frustrate the implementation of the law? Or was it just more of the same, the head of you know uh, the city of Toronto's political apparatus is always about you know, not wanting to raise property taxes or whatever that is it a political issue I would say, or is it just like a, we don't care kind of issue? I mean, at the end of the day, I don't know because those 10 inspectors, they're like, they collected the money. So I don't know what happened to the money. (laughs) We've actually referred the matter to the Toronto auditor um, general for that reason. Oh, Um, did you get a response there? uh, Unfortunately, no. Uh, And I'm not sure why that is either. Um, but look, I mean, there were elements of this program that are good. You know, it had a rating system. It had fines or what they're called administrative monetary penalties you can issue against the landlord. They were supposed to make kind of their website easier. They were supposed to hire these inspectors and a data analyst. Uh, none of that's been implemented over the last three years. And again, that's consistent with not wanting to implement the program. Uh, and again, you just compare that to how they've dealt with cannabis and it's night and day. Yeah. So not sure if it's incompetence, neglect, or, or someone trying to sink something that's actually going to help poor people. Yeah. Um, but uh, whatever it is, 
Um, those cleaning plans would have come in really handy during a global pandemic. It, that 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 was my you know that was the answer to the question. I guess is that if if we had these inspectors in place, this kind of these kind of landlord shenanigans would either be short lived, muted, or dealt with effectively. And I mean, in all fairness, MLS. I've I've met with Tracy Cook. I'm not sure if she's still the head of MLS. I met her a bunch of times. Very competent woman, very competent leader of that department, and she's very diligent, and I appreciate a lot of the work that she does. And I understand how overwhelmed some MLS officers are, but this is like a program that's been given funding and and direction from city council not being implemented at all, even three years later. I mean, in my own building, you know, I was excited to see uh, one of the recommendations was putting up a, a board, a, a community board that everyone can understand what maintenance is happening, when it's happening, shut it, shut offs, all those kinds of things. Like there were different parts that were supposed to be implemented there. And again, I haven't seen it. I mean, it's not as big an issue in my building. I mean, my landlords are, are wonderful and I love them to death, but it's not the same. I understand that there are other people and other folks around the city that are in a lot more precarious positions and a lot more adverse adversarial relationships with their landlords. And these measures would have gone a long way. And I want to speak to a little bit about, I would, I, I like, I call it the almost outer ring of Toronto. There's a ring of, of high rise. I would say it's, it's like second phase Toronto in the building boom of the fifties and the sixties where these giant high rises would emerge uh, in the expansive suburbs of Toronto um, is where a lot of the issues seem to be taking place today. Um, and I mean, there are diff- there are a million reasons for it, but I think a, a bigger reason, a big reason for it, and I will refer back to, I can always link this in the show notes, Helchansky's report, uh, I think it was the Three Cities report, um, that highlighted the demographic shift in Toronto where wealth was being concentrated into the downtown and then the outer ring of the suburbs was seeing more and more poverty over the years. Essentially, the eroding of the middle class created a suburban-urban divide in Toronto that today we're starting to see affect a lot of these high-rise areas uh, um, uh, in the city, specifically because they're less expensive. They're attracting, attracting newcomers who might have language barriers or be afraid of knowing their rights or don't know their rights, don't know their legal rights or afraid to ask for help. And because of that, it's almost like a perfect storm of landlord abuse happening in this outer ring because of the communities that are occupying these spaces. Can you speak a little bit to that? Because a lot of people down in the downtown area might not understand that level of dynamic happening up there and uh, and how this lockdown is uniquely affecting those groups? Yeah, you know, I was just talking to somebody about that today, the uh, head of the Scarborough Civic Action Network. Um, and, and you're right. Um, what, what, when you look at kind of Toronto 30 years ago, what it used to look like is you'd have a lot of wealth downtown, um, pretty solid middle class that would kind of form a ring around the old city of Toronto and go then a little bit into Etobicoke, uh, North York and Scarborough. Um, and what's happened to Toronto is that entire middle ring is gone. Um, it's quite a bit different than what happened in Vancouver, where it's actually like the, the low income in Vancouver has completely fled the city. 
So Vancouver, all you've got is middle class and upper class folks. Whereas in Toronto, um, pretty much the, the the outer ring for Etobicoke, um, kind of all the way into the north part of North York, up near like Steeles, uh, and then out into Scarborough, and then kind of down again, like a kind of a, an upside down horseshoe. Uh, it's really kind of like low income um, kind of communities out there that are making up the bulk of that population. And what that you kind of see that filter out into the um, into the rental market. So whereas you've got like a lot of condos and maybe the downtown core that are twenty five hundred dollars for you know a month for a shoebox, they've got a sauna in the building, nice uh, you know um, workout and fitness room, um, but absolutely you know no, no community, you know no stores, no nightlife in a lot of those communities. You have quite a different situation, um, kind of in the, that outer kind of ring of low-income folks. So, for example, you'll see uh, a lot of the high-rises in the Mimico area or in kind of the Rexdale area, kind of Kipling on Kipling Avenue. A lot of them are just um, completely in a poor state of repair. They're, um, land, you know, they got one elevator that works, uh, one that's breaking down all the time, uh, massive kind of pest outbreaks in the building, um, a lot of the amenities don't work. You've got, you know, obviously like uh, plumbing that's failing. So you would and say it's a, it's a, 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 a more of a petri dish for predatory landlord behavior, um, given yeah, those conditions. I mean, look, yeah, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I think a lot of the landlords in those areas have realized that they can just break the law, and no one's going to force them to fix it. So is it just no, a matter of eyeballs? It's just people. I imagine how people maybe might be afraid or not understanding how to assert their rights, or is it just a matter of the city in not putting any level of attention on it? Because I do know some departments are divided into North York, Scarborough, Etobicoke, uh, Toronto, East York. Um, and because of that, they have their own departments and their own efforts focus on those areas. But why, what, what do you, what can you say attributes that can be attributed uh what can you say can be uh, is the reason why these areas are being so ignored? Um, you know, I think it's just that the law is not set up to go after landlords. You know, when you look at 2779 Kipling, it's a large building uh, made up a lot of people of color, large uh, black population, a uh, large population of newcomers and immigrants. Um, that building's got a rap sheet. Uh, a mile long in terms of bylaw infractions, uh, just huge. Again, yeah. they you know over and over the city's gone in. Um, they've ordered the landlord to fix it, um, but the landlord knows that they can just ignore that and nothing's going to happen. Um, this was why the rent safe program was uh, built in the first place to give the city more power to kind of go and deal with those things. So it's been very frustrating as one of the key agencies that's been involved with that program to essentially watch people refuse to implement it. Because uh, that landlord should be pouring money that they get from the rent, not into their own coffers of profit, yeah. but to fix the building up appropriately. And, uh, you know, that's just one building. You kind of see um, regional issues um, similar to that in different areas. So, you know, in Scarborough, you're going to see similar things in a lot of the high-rise towers. Uh, you see a lot of, um, again, just people that can't get maintenance done and harassment. 
a lot of families are having to cram into small different areas because the rents have just started um, skyrocketing about 10 years ago. So you get, you know, two families in a two bedroom apartment that should really be one. Um, but also you get the same degree of maintenance issues. The landlords are just refusing to kind of fix these things. So, you know, there, there's, there's a way to deal with it. Um, again, you just have to take it seriously and have to want to help these people. Make it and a priority. Again, yeah. And again, like, you know, MLS has priorities. Again, they, they, they pulled cinder blocks and put them in front of cannabis shops. You right. know, that was very extreme kind of way to deal with the scenario, but it was obviously a priority for them to ensure that um, those weren't operating. Uh, unfortunately, a baby covered in bed bug bites does not have the same level of priority. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the 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 legal process here. Um, I do know on some level MLS has to go to a tribunal in order to enforce action on landlords, does it not? Well, um, it does under the old system. Okay. Um, so how, one of the reasons why the new system was kind of created is it allows them to kind of set up different appeal systems. So um, a lot of the powers that MLS has are a creature of the province. Um, I believe the, the planning act or the building code uh, required them to kind of put in these bylaws and have appeals. And so you had, for example... Um, Metcap uh, landlord that was managing a bunch of buildings in Parkdale. We heard from a counselor there that they they would automatically just appeal every order um, to you know just to frustrate the system, yeah, just to not have to do maintenance for as long as they possibly could. And again, this is legally required maintenance. This isn't adding a new sauna or chandelier. This is just bare minimum following the law. Do you think um, it's just a, a matter of the murkiness between the city and the provincial statutes and the fact that Toronto really is not an existing level of government? It's essentially an enactment by legislation. Um, is it, is it just that murkiness? or? Yeah, I think that's initially uh, how it was set up. I mean, it was a system designed to fail. It was a yeah. system designed to be kept in check as in like daddy province is going to take care of the city of Toronto. Therefore they have controls over the financial uh, benefits that the city might provide, but then have an arm's length. Uh, no, thank you. If they're, if the city needs help, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's possible. I mean, honestly though, I, I think it was literally just set up to not be very effective. Yeah. Um, because, look, if you're a landlord that illegally charges a tenant $300, you're probably going to get away with that. But if you're a person that goes into a Tim Hortons and steals $300, um, you're going to get arrested and go to jail. Right. Uh, and again, both of those things um, impact people in kind of the same way. In fact, the landlord ripping off the poor person is actually in a lot of ways worse. Right. It's going to harm them more. Um, but again, the, the mechanism there is set up to kind of go after the person ripping off the Tim Hortons, not the person ripping off the tenant. So about legal, the legal process during the pandemic, uh, have there been amendments to the Residential Tenancies Act or something within the emergency legislation? I know that there's a moratorium on evictions, but can you walk us through a little bit about what the, the current rights status are for tenants 
whether they live in a <coughs> one unit uh, place or a multi unit residential uh, building. Yeah, it's it's frustrating, um, but the reality is nothing has changed. The only thing has changed is what you've um, what you've mentioned, um, which is that landlords can't evict people right now until that ban is lifted. Uh, there's been a number of recommendations put out there that are being completely ignored. So, for example, you know the Minister of Housing provincially, Steve Clark. Um, has suggested that landlords not pass on rent increases. They still are. Uh, he suggested that landlords and tenants work together around non-payment. And I think Pinedale Properties in Crescent Town showed you how effective that was. Um, they've recommended that landlords only enter units, um, you know, for emergency purposes. And again, that's one of the most um, common complaints we've gotten that's being completely ignored. And people are getting infected and a lot, you know, I get a lot of calls from people that work in the health industry that are terrified. You know, yeah. this, uh, one woman had said, look, I'm terrified both ways. My landlord wants to show, bring a string of people to see my unit because I'm supposed to be moving out in May. Uh, and I'm afraid that either they're going to get me sick and I'm going to take it to the hospital or that I might be sick right now and I'm yeah. going to infect all of them. Um, so again, that, you know, that they could have walked down on that and provided very clear direction. Uh, instead, the laws are basically the same, and it's turned into a war in a lot of buildings between landlords and tenants. So right now, even though there's an eviction moratorium in place, the landlord can still technically begin the process of eviction. Is that correct? Yeah, a number of them have done that, and a number of them are allowed, you know, sorry, they're definitely allowed to do that, and a number of them are doing it. So um, you're seeing many tenants get N4 notices, which are um, kind of the, the warning letters you get um, that the landlord has to give you before you they take you to court. And the biggest risk there, and I, I really can't stress this enough for your listeners, a lot of people don't realize that an eviction notice is not the same as an eviction order. Right. So they get this notice and they think they're evicted. They'll call us being like, I've just been evicted. And we'll ask them, oh, you know, how is that possible? Was there a hearing? And they'll explain that they just got the notice, but they don't, they don't realize that, that they can't be evicted with that. Um, and the big problem there is that, well, a lot of people call us, you know, for every person that calls us, 10 don't. Uh, yeah. And a lot of those people are now moving during a pandemic. They're now looking for an apartment during a pandemic, which is the last thing you want from a health and safety perspective. Right. And so speaking of moving, I mean, the other issue and tenant issues are near and dear to my heart. Um, I've had to deal with just horrible nightmare landlords in the past. Um, and I've dealt with a lot of good ones, um, but I do know that both exist out there. Um, but one of the biggest issues over the last year has been, or a couple big issues, was occupancy rate in the city for and affordable housing. Affordable housing, for those out there, it's not social housing. It's a different form. It's an affordable form of housing, which in the end is not really affordable. But those issues in terms of have people having access to housing in the city have been on the radar of Torontonians for a long time. The city has been kind of dragging its feet on a lot of this. But a big player in exacerbating that issue has been the 
short-term tenancies, uh, short-term rental properties that have emerged, exploded in the city over the last five years. Now we're seeing, and of course I'm referring to entities like an Airbnb or whatever the other ones are. Um, Now we're seeing those properties go on the market and uh and flooding not i wouldn't say flooding but increasing the supply of housing do you see that being a permanent fixture of toronto's housing market and increase in supply number one number two is there an effort to push for a limitation or even an outright ban of short-term rental and in in order to take this opportunity of nobody essentially renting airbnbs right now uh, to limit that in order to increase supply in the housing market, in the rental market in Toronto? I know that's a long-winded question. There's a lot of moving parts there, but hopefully you can speak to some of that. Yeah. Um, so first of all, um, the, the short-term rental market in Toronto is being estimated to be about 10,000 units. Um, and you know, if, if the city were building 10,000 units a year, uh, again, we wouldn't be in a rental crisis. A lot of people don't realize this, but most of the housing, um, like rental housing, uh, that's been built in Toronto, it didn't just happen magically. It didn't just happen because developers wanted to build it. There used to be these large-scale federal programs that built most of the housing that we have. Um, and a lot of that was homeownership, like cheap you know, houses, but a lot of that was rental. And most of those programs were eliminated in the 90s. And when they were eliminated, we said, you know, at some point you're going to run out of housing and you're going to be in a housing crisis. And sadly, we were proven right. Why were Um, they eliminated? Do you you recall the the rationale behind it, whether or not it was right or correct or not? Well, the rationale was essentially to move housing from being part of infrastructure like roads, water pipes, schools – and move it to an investment kind of uh, picture, uh, um, which was, you know, part of this kind of nonsense in the 90s that the free market's going to solve everything. Uh, and again, I think that th- those kind of um, arguments kind of came to bore in 2008 when the entire financialization melted down. But, um, you know, we're seeing the same kind of system happen right now because um, the financialization of housing has actually increased. Um, since the financial crisis. It hasn't gone down. In fact, it's the root. um, What happened in 2008 in the U.S. is the root of the global financial, uh, the global housing crisis that's happening, not just in Toronto, not just in Vancouver, but around the world. Um, You know, I think it's taken a lot of time for people to realize this, but, you know, the housing market hasn't just started going wild in Toronto. If you talk to folks in Bogota, Colombia, the exact same thing's happening there. You yeah. talk to folks in Australia, same thing. And all this backstory um, uh, kind of lends in to um, the short-term rental issue. And the short-term rental issue is kind of the same thing. It's treating housing that's zoned to be lived in or rented out um, as a hotel. To make Commodity, money. yeah. yeah. Um, so a couple of things have happened over the couple of years around that that can help answer your question. Um the first thing is that the city of Toronto um, has now spent a number of years trying to ban these mm-hmm. and basically say you can't, you, you can't rent out a condo um, as a hotel. You've got to use it as a place to live. Right. 
Um, and so after years in court, um, the city of Toronto finally won that battle. Mm-hmm. They won that battle earlier on this year. Um, and uh, that's why I think, yeah, long term, this stock is coming back. Now, I didn't think it was going to come back. Um, or at least this quickly, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, now, again, most of those Airbnb operators were breaking the law brazenly, which is consistent with everything I've told you. Which right. Is, law is not really enforced for them. Um, but um, an interesting thing happened uh, last month, uh, which is that the province um, agreed with our recommendations uh, and again said you can't rent them out on the short-term rental market. So again, uh, when I say the province agreed with our recommendations, the problem is, is we made those recommendations two years ago. Um, the provincial government was looking to add supply to the system through the supply consultation that they held. Mm-hmm. Uh, we weren't sure if they were serious. So we took part. Uh, we said, Hey, you can add 10,000 units of supply for free. Yeah. And all you've got to do is side with the city of Toronto. Uh, and they weren't serious. Um, they didn't listen to that recommendation. They didn't even address it um, because their consultation was actually more about how can we help the development industry make more money? Uh, not about actually adding supply. Um, however, the crisis kicked in. Um, they saw the writing on the wall and they finally re- um, um, followed our recommendation. Uh, and, and this is important, rents have finally gone down. This is the first time it's happened in almost 10 years. So long. Um, so yeah. long, yeah. It's, it's, it's incredible even just to see what's out there now. But, I mean, if one were to have to move right now, I mean... Maybe they'll find something. Maybe they'll find something cheaper. But even just the prospect of moving is an insane thing because you're essentially asking people to put themselves at risk. They don't know what kind of pathogen profile they're exposing themselves to uh, in different different areas. And it's, there's just so much insanity. But I, I guess what you're saying is that if a short-term rental regime would try to rear its head in the city again it would have a much tougher go at it would you say i mean i think so yeah for two reasons first of all all the regulations have pushed that out um and not just city regulations but also provincial regulations right which are Um, more respected because they are actual laws instead of bylaws right yeah well i mean uh, more respected because i think it's just the two of them working together Right. Right. Again, if it's if it's illegal under both laws, it's kind of hard to justify doing it. Um, but I, the other reason is that you know, um, unfortunately, those Airbnb operators they didn't follow the law, um, and now they have lost a lot of money. Good. Um, and they didn't uh, they didn't um, do proper risk management. They didn't follow the law. So what a lot of them are doing now is they're putting those units on the rental market. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen the reports about that. It's incredible to see that. And and once they're on the market, it's really hard to get them off. Yeah. So that's a little bit of good news. Uh, I mean, there are a bunch of different things, a, a, a bunch of different pillars of society being reorganized as we speak. And that's, I guess, one of the, the less highlighted ones. And it'll be interesting to see how that um, that plays out in the medium and long term. Um, so... In terms of the, the, the market generally, that's obviously not – that'll be a Band-Aid in resolving the housing crisis uh, currently taking place. 
How do you see that? You mentioned it would break one of two ways, um, not just in Toronto, perhaps, but in major cities and hubs, as people are looking to people might be working from home going forward. Uh, more and more people, a greater percentage, which means t- commuting to work or wanting to be close to work, will not be as much of a of a value add to their lives. So they might even live a little bit further out and be comfortable with that. So density might change, or and and, and the makeup of density might change uh, in the city. How do you suspect? And I, you don't have to have a crystal ball on this, but how might you suspect that plays out going forward in the city and maybe others? Um, it really all depends on who folks are listening to, uh, in power. Uh, one of the, um, nice things about, um, kind of dealing with this crisis is it's been interesting to see how engaged the city of Toronto at all levels of government have been. Um, you know, there's been, um, uh, severe criticism that they've had around how they've handled, um, the homeless population. Um, but I, I can guarantee you, everyone I've talked to says that um, they are like everyone's kind of working really hard and trying to pull in similar directions, kind of in the government. Um, yeah. They're talking to us. Um, they're talking to advocates. Um, they've made mistakes, um, and they're paying for not dealing with the homelessness crisis from before. Um, but you know, I, I don't think I have any. Um, um, believe the, the folks in the city aren't, you know, working their butts off to try to at least deal with stuff. Yeah. Um, and we're mostly trying to ensure that they're dealing with it the right way and not making just really poor moves. Um, but when you compare that to the provincial and federal governments, it's totally different. Uh, I don't think the province or the feds have talked to a single renters group around the, the, the province or the country. You know, we asked, you know, who are you talking to? And they said, uh, not really anyone. We're mostly focusing on, you know, the homelessness issue and dealing with the cities. Um, and the problem with that is that there are two kind of ways of seeing this crisis. And the first way is the way that we see it, which is that it's a complete nightmare. Um, you know, you've got a bunch of people that can't pay. You've got a bunch of people being harassed, a bunch of people getting sick. And um, on the horizon, you've got um, mass evictions in the decks if things don't change. Yep. Um, the problem is, is that on the other side, there's a huge group that's seeing this as an opportunity. Um, you've got large landlords that are um, hoping to evict a bunch Doing of Doing one of these kind of thing? Like, yeah, the, the, wow. the Montgomery Burns finger uh, thing from the Simpsons. Carpet bagging kind of thing, those types? Yeah, they're, they're looking at uh, evicting a bunch of tenants as a ways that they can kind of jack the rents. We're already seeing that in the commercial sector. A lot of landlords are basically ignoring the provincial pro- provincial federal program, and they've, they're evicting people because, I mean, we had an experience with that down on uh, Queen Street in an organization that uh, I was a part of, and they're essentially they're booting people out, like good good tenants who have created an incredible amount of infrastructure to put in a weed dispensary. I mean, it's one I think that they're going to run themselves almost. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, even on the landlord side, there's that divide. Um, a lot of the small landlords or that only own maybe a few units or maybe only own a building, um, they've actually called on the province to provide rent relief. They did that in B.C. 
Uh, they've done that here. But waiting in the wings are these large private equity firms um, that are looking to snap up discounted houses. Like I, I'm not just saying that hypothetically. That's exactly what happened in 2008. Yeah, um, large you know groups like uh, Blackstone or BlackRock, they swooped in and bought um, a huge amount of rental properties at a discount. That's scary. Um, well, and the scarier thing is, is that who the province and feds are listening to? Is that who they're talking to? They're they're definitely talking to the landlord lobby. They're definitely not talking to us. They're definitely not talking to anyone else that we're with. Uh, and the federal government's the same thing. Not only are they not talking to us, and that they're talking to Blackstone um, or BlackRock, but BlackRock was just hired by the Bank of Canada to help with um, post-pandemic financial planning. So you know, our concern is that again, the the people in power that. Frankly, I, I don't think really know what they're doing um, and don't really know what's happening on the ground are going to kind of keep making these decisions. Is there anyone who is perhaps picking up the torch on this or you see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel in terms of someone who's trying desperately to get the federal government's attention to shed light on this looming potentially looming nightmare scenario where now an oligopoly of private equity firms owns a majority of the rental housing stock in the country and perhaps drive the prices up or create an untouchable entities when it comes to tenant rights. Is there anyone out there perhaps picking up that mantle? Um, there are parties that are kind of bringing up these issues and, you know, we're bringing this up as an agency and a lot of other agencies across the country are doing that as well. Yeah. You know, so in Vancouver, you got the Vancouver Tenants Union, Victoria, um, Victoria Action Tenants Group, um, Quebec's got Frapru and Reclac. They're they're raising these issues left, right, and center. Uh, and we know that some groups are at least kind of bringing this up as an issue um, to the feds. But I mean, our concern is that the feds already know it, and that that's actually the plan. And they um, just don't care, or is it just a matter of they think that the, the current tenant advocacy is just kind of like a nebulous issue that they just don't want to deal with. And they would rather deal with a handful of rental housing stock owners than deal with tenant groups. Or is it just a matter of just class ignorance? They just don't give a crap. I mean, I don't know. Um, one thing I think is very interesting is that, you know, the federal government has waived rent uh, for six months, but they did it for airports um, so airline industries have get free rent. And then these folks engage in just reckless share buybacks over the last years, like just totally like frittering their money away on profits uh, instead of preparing for something like this. Um, you know, um, the feds have said, well, we can't do anything because it's a provincial issue. Well, that wasn't the case for commercial rents, which are right. a provincial issue. But again, they've given a program giving them 75% off. Yeah. And it, the, the way they the way they talk about that is that oh we were able to do that because these folks we were able to do it through the the the, the Canada uh, Mortgage Corporation uh, I think that's it Canada uh, Mortgage and Housing Corporation yeah and I'm like well you can do the same thing for those who have t commercial properties as well with uh, or sorry uh, tenant properties rental properties with mortgages on them as well you can use the same legislation so uh, it's, it's such a canard. Yeah. Uh, and then provincially, um, just today, um, Premier Doug Ford came out really hard against vicious landlords. Yeah. Um, 
but he did it for commercial landlords. Right. Uh, again, so, you know, I, I think this is just simply the scenario uh, of governments, um, you know, dealing with their friends and the people that they work with. Yeah. Um, they're not working with renters. Um, they are working with these big private firms. They're working with commercial lobbies. They're working with big oil and industry. And that's, again, um, where you've seen the kind of the strongest and quickest work done. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to groups like renters, there's nothing. When it comes to workers, you've had the CERB program, which is, you know, $24,000 a year salary that they've made change after change after change to because they keep mucking it up. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know. And just the average rent in Toronto, I think, for what, a one bedroom or even a. Uh, I don't know. A studio is what fifteen hundred or something, seventeen hundred. Well, the, the, the there's an interesting the average the starting rent. Like if you were to look for an apartment today, yeah, I think the the average would be twenty two hundred dollars. Wow. So you wouldn't even be able to cover your rent with that. And wow. you know, again, we pointed that out, and they've said, well, yeah, they shrug. <laughs> they give you the shrug emoticon, right? Like yeah. emoji. Um, yeah. So it's just a matter of their priorities are just always they have their priorities have never been with those with tenants and and this isn't a niche issue i mean toronto is com- comprised of over 50 percent tenants is, is that not the case yeah 50 percent of households in toronto are tenants yeah. Yeah. yeah so it's half the city who is dealing with this issue either right now or they're going to be dealing with it very soon in the near or long-term future as you know things like Serb run out and things like where ten where where landlords start a either getting um, impatient and uh, perhaps looking to make faster money by evicting people. Um, who knows? But there's a storm coming, I think, and it's very sad and disheartening to hear that there's not more political will to protect essentially uh, a group. Uh, a very, very uniform group of of residents in Toronto um, who will be facing a very unique issue um, in in the coming months. Um, Jordy, I really appreciate you coming on and helping us through this. Is there anything else that you would like to add in in terms of these issues or something that you would like to highlight? Uh, Perhaps an action point where people could perhaps assist? Um, you know, I want to highlight two things. You know, I did mention that things could break a couple different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and one of those ways is I just kind of explored, which is business as usual. Um, but there is another way. Uh, and that could be that um, some of these governments or some of the people advising them realize that you can't just keep treating uh, apartments like gold bars. Um, in addition to all the Airbnb units, there's actually about 30 to 40,000 um, condo units that are just sitting vacant in the city of Toronto. Why is that? Is it because of the private equity firms who buy these things up and park money into them? Well, one of the private equity firms, BlackRock, I think his CEO said it best. You know, when the 2000, I, I mentioned that this stuff all relates to the 2008 financial crisis. But what happened then was that all these billionaire investors around the world who were putting their money into the U.S. market, had to put it somewhere else. And what he said is that um, for these rich investors, um, apartment buildings in London, England, Vancouver, and Toronto 
are the new gold bars. So if you want to invest you know, a few million dollars, you just buy a bunch of condo units. And like a new car, you don't drive it off the lot because it then goes down in value. You just keep it empty. And if you've been doing that in Toronto, and a lot of people have, the value keeps going up. So, yeah. you know, I think the pandemic may have actually put a stop to all of that. And then what you're going to have is, again, tens of thousands of empty units lying around um, that are losing value that people are going to realize they have to start renting out. And that actually could help. Um, in addition to the federal government realizing that the, the gamble they made back in the 90s has failed uh, and then they've got to then get back into uh, the unit. Um, so or they've got to get back into the, the housing sector. Um, so a lot of these things have been raised and, and fought over um, um, and, and, and that we know these issues, um, not just due to anyone writing about them, but because I think tenants in this province and around the country, um, they've been organizing around these issues for so long. Uh, in every city, in every community in, in Ontario, you've got small groups of people trying to fight for housing. So, you know, uh, you don't get anything, uh, you know, none of the programs that we have that we hold dear in Canada um, came out of thin air. A lot of, uh, you know, almost all of those housing units that were built um, in uh, Canada um, after the war were built from veterans activism. And so what we, um, what you're seeing right now in Toronto is a lot of new activism and it's happening from a lot of local groups, groups like ours, groups like ACORN, um, a lot of the legal clinics are helping out. And so, you know, I, um, there are kind of, there could be some good news on the horizon. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of these units could come onto the market and and bring rents down again. Um, The Fed and the province could get back into the housing building game, which other countries never stopped doing. Quebec never stopped building units, and that's why their rents are so there's a way out of them, and people to, again, just keep keep being persistent in their pressure. Um, We've put out petitions pushing the province and feds. Other people have done so. We've done letter-writing campaigns. Um, Other people are trying to organize folks that can't pay their rent uh, to work together to try to, again, get a good deal and some respect from their landlord. And we just urge people to kind of engage with those uh, and to be persistent. Uh, and for won- those and for those who want to start a, a, a tenants association themselves, they can contact your organization to get that ball rolling. At least organize on the ground level. If you start feeling any pressure by your landlords to deal with this current lockdown situation in an unsafe manner, do not hesitate to get in touch with Jordy or his or or his group. Um, if you would like to give some of the details about uh, how folks can get in contact with you. Yeah, I mean, uh, two best ways are to go to our website, torontotenants.org, um, and you can find a lot of information there, including ways to contact us. Or you can always call our tenant hotline, 416-921-9494. We've got staff that can help. We've got people that can answer questions. Uh, and again, we're, uh, we're going to help you any way we can. And everyone at home, if you're a tenant, you have rights. Don't you don't have to listen to everything your landlord says. If you feel like you're being leaned on or pushed pushed against in a in a weird way, do not hesitate to contact Yardy's group, the Federation of Metro Tenants Associations, and I will link some of the information uh, Jordy just described below. 
um, some resources perhaps, and, uh, and and you can go from there if if you need to if you need to move on on an issue. Jordy, I really this has been an enlightening conversation, especially uh, the private equity portion that I wasn't too aware of, and I'm going to be doing a lot to look deeper into that because that's that out of anything big money. Billionaire investors looking at, at housing stock as a commodity is something that scares me a lot because housing is home. Home is where the heart is. And essentially, when people start treating these things like, as you said, gold bars instead of where people live, build community relationships and, and raise families, that is a scary prospect for me. And hopefully this issue in the current lockdown situation will do a lot to raise uh, awareness for um, what's happening in the current situation. And so I want to thank you, Jordy. I appreciate your time. We've spent a lot of good time speaking about this, and I would not hesitate to bring you on again to speak further on this issue uh, should should the opportunity arise. Uh, and I hope you feel the same way. Uh, I appreciate your time. Uh, great being on here, and uh, thanks. It's always great to have these kind of long-form conversations. I usually only get, you know, 30 seconds looking like a fool on uh, on CBC. So I uh, appreciate you giving me the time to uh, talk about some of these issues. Yeah, no problem. And never a fool on CBC when you're raising tenant issues. I mean, they're they're super important. And uh, and yeah, that's why we we're, that's why I started this cast. Why we've started this cast is to give these issues a little bit more uh, more energy in in, in in the media sphere and uh, in the conversational ecosystem. Thanks again, Jordy. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.